Some of you guys may remember the name Mortimer J. Adler. Anybody watch Mortimer J. Adler on PBS? Am I dating myself? Man, I'm, I'm outdating some of you older folks here. Wow. I love his stuff. Mortimer J. Adler was a thinker. Uh, if you ever owned an Encyclopedia Britannica set, he was the general editor of it. He was a very brilliant man in many, many ways. He wrote a book called The Difference of Man and the Difference That It Makes. And in it, he said this, It is impossible for anyone who understands the distinction between difference in degree and difference in kind to assert in the face of available evidence that man differs only in degree from animals. One Christian philosopher has identified seven truths that changed the world. The first one you've probably heard of, the Imago Dei, man made in God's image. He says this with that truth, as creatures made in God's image, people can find fulfillment only through an intimate relationship with their Creator. But separated from Him by sin and therefore out of sync with His intentions, humans experience existential angst and estrangement from God, from others, and from themselves. Biblically speaking, or he says this, a human's true knowledge of self can only be discovered in and through knowing God. Biblically speaking, we are incomplete, unexplained, and even obsolete without reference to God our Creator. John Calvin stated it this way, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. However, if you're to walk onto an Ivy League college campus, you'll find one of the questions that we are now asking ourselves is what does it mean to be human? This was a truth that changed the world. We were created in God's image, and that defined for people who we were. It defined our existence, it defined our potential, it defined our identity, everything. And yet, in the most brilliant of institutions today, they're asking the question, what does it mean to be human? And they're not able to answer it. They're not able to come up with an answer. So much so, they wonder if they really even exist at all. In fact, just as Mortimer J. Adler said, if all you do is reckon man to differ in degree from animals, it's no wonder you're asking that question. That's a natural question to ask. If all we do is differ from animal, the animal kingdom by degree as opposed to kind, who are we? We are incomplete, unexplained, and even obsolete without reference to God. Today, my intention is to look at evangelism from an angle, quite honestly, that I hadn't considered. And I've seen one of these truths for a while in Scripture. But I asked myself, what, what does this mean? What particularly does the incarnation have to do with evangelism? And so, I'm not going to fault you. If this is new for you, it's new for me. And I'm going to endeavor and I'm going to ask you to pray for me to make it clear. Really what we're going to do, I don't have a single text that we're going to stay in, but 
We're going to start at the beginning. As I said, turn to Genesis 1.26. We're going to look at man, first of all, man made in God's image. Because this really will help us understand part of the purpose of evangelism in the first place. We're told in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you're familiar with the creation account, this is the only of God's creations that has said to have been made in his image. And different theological traditions debate what exactly this image is, because nowhere in Scripture is it clearly identified, here's what it means to be made in the image of God. But there's generally these following points that these different traditions agree on. God's image includes rational, moral, relational, spiritual, and self-conscious dimensions that makes them different from the rest of creation. Philosopher and Christian apologist Kenneth Sample says this, a careful examination of Genesis 1, 26 and 27 in those Hebrew words for image and likeness shows it conveys the idea of an object similar to or representative of something else, but not identical to it. So being created in the image of God, according to these words used, means you're similar to but not identical with God. The New Testament Greek word for image conveys the same thing as the Hebrew. Kenneth Samples concludes, Both languages indicate that God created humans to be similar to Himself, but certainly not identical to Himself. Therefore, from a biblical perspective, human beings are in some sense both like and unlike God, who made them. This is a good truth that we're going to start off with. We, we have and we bear the image of God to degree. No one can correspond to God except God Himself. And in the triunity of His being, He does. Every person of the Trinity perfectly corresponds to one another, and they magnify one another and glorify one another. Every other created thing, whether it be angels, man, or anything from the animal kingdom, cannot correspond to God, and it was man alone who was made with those dimensions of God. It's interesting, I had Bo read Psalm 8. In four different passages, at least in the Scriptures, Man finds himself asking the question, God, what is man that you think of us? When you peer into the heavens, as Psalm 8 says, and you see the vastness of God's creation, its grandeur, its beauty, its bigness, and how small we seem to be, what is man that you're mindful of him? Who are we that you care for us? Who are we that you set your special affection upon people? He didn't do it for angels. He didn't do it for animals. He did it for men. The answer to that question scripturally is because we alone bear His image. We alone resemble Him. Man as God created Him was noble. He was honorable. He was authoritative, sovereign over creation. Psalm 8 actually says that, quoting Genesis 1, God gave dominion over all of creation. He was upright and just. And Psalm 8 says He was crowned with glory and honor. 
all reflective of God Himself. It is an undeniable fact that God delights in man, that man, God is mindful of, of people. Despite our questioning it, God, who am I that you're mindful of me? There's an absolute authoritative response to that from God. I am mindful of you and I do love you, despite how small you might be. God is thoughtful, loving, mindful of men. So, uh, Proverbs 8, verse 30 and 31, I believe depicting Christ as the wisdom of God at the creation of all things, says this, I was beside Him like a master workman, and I was daily His delight, rejoicing before Him always, rejoicing in His inhabited world, and delighting in the children of men. The Minor Prophets, God says this, I will rejoice over you with loud singing. John 3.16, God so loved the world. Everywhere in Scripture we see this declaration from God that His affection is on us. He calls Israel in the Old Testament, you are the apple of my eye. But who are we, God, that, we're mind, that you're mindful of us? Certainly not because of what we've done. But it is because we are created in His image. So we are a unique creation. We bear the image of God. But I want you to look at chapter 2 of Genesis with me. This is really what's led me down this course we're going to take today. In Genesis 2, what we have is, is Moses zeroing in on the sixth day. Okay, God has made everything else. He's made all the animals of the earth. And in the sixth day, He makes man, Adam first. And then He creates a garden for Adam to tend and to keep. He also has Adam naming all the animals. So God is busy bringing every single animal He's created. Adam is naming them. And whatever name Adam gives them, that's what its name was. So in this setting, God makes what seems to us, at least to me, an incredibly startling statement. Look at it with me. It's verse uh, 18 of Genesis 2. He's just warned Adam not to eat of the fruit, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In verse 18, the Lord God said... It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I don't know. You've probably read that hundreds of times, maybe. Have you ever stopped to think about what God just said? Eve hasn't even been made yet. Sin has not entered the world. And yet God looks at Adam and says, it's not good that you're alone. For our existentially minded people and our relationally orientated church, this might rub you raw. It might go against the grain of what we always think. Adam wasn't alone. He had God. And he had God perfectly in fellowship. Why did God say Adam was alone? He had perfect relationship with God. We nevertheless find God saying this. I, th I think, first of all, going back to our definition in 126, being made in the image and likeness of God does not mean, as we defined it, that God corresponds to men. 
Even in Adam's perfection, even in Adam's sinlessness, he couldn't perfectly correspond to God. Every other being in creation, whether it be angels or animals, had something that they corresponded to. God Himself and His triune being corresponded to Himself. Adam was very, really alone because there was not another human who was lower than the angels, higher than the animal kingdom. He was very truly alone because he had none who corresponded to him. Secondly, well, that was secondly. What does God say he's going to do about it? He declares it's not good, and he declares Adam's alone. So I will make for you someone to correspond to you. And he brings us Eve. Now, I've always focused on the relational aspect of that husband and wife relationship. But I want us to zoom back a little bit and look at the bigger picture here. I believe Eve, in this sense, just like all over the Old Testament, Eve is a type of Christ. What do I mean by that? If you were to go over to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 and 17... Actually, just go there real quick with me. Find Hebrews chapter 4. You're going to find the language of Genesis fulfilled. Man needs someone who corresponds to him. It's not a desire. It's not a wish. It's a need. There's a very real sense that people need people. It doesn't detract from God's glory. It doesn't detract from our relationship with God Himself. It's very real, and God Himself declared, it's not good that you're alone, Adam. Yes, you have perfect fellowship with me, but you can't correspond to me. I'm God. You know love. You know it in a finite way. I am love infinite. You'll never correspond to that. You know goodness in a finite way. I'm goodness infinite. So what did God do? Hebrews chapter 4 Verse 14 and following. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, both downward to earth and back upward to heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now notice the language of this next verse. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to what? Help. What did God say He'll make for us in Genesis? A helper. One who corresponds to us. Jesus has been tempted in every way. That's corresponding to us. Yet He's without sin. Hebrews 4 says here He's the Son of God, and yet clearly He's the Son of Man. One who in every way is tempted as we are. John in his Gospel, chapter 1. We studied this yesterday in men's small group. I loved it. John opens up in 1.1. Sounding so similar to Genesis 1. In the beginning. Right? And what John is doing is paralleling Genesis in the creative creation narrative. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now John is working to specifically identify Jesus as that Word. But John adds something that Genesis 2 only alluded to. In verse 14 of John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And beholding Jesus as a man, mankind saw the truest picture and display of what mankind was supposed to be as man. As God had originally made him. But they also conversely saw what sin had done and made him to be. To sum up these two points, I want to say it this way. When God created man, he created man special. Man bore God's image. God delights in man because man bears his image. And yet, even here, there was something missing in man's life. He had no one who corresponded to him. In the meantime, God made Eve. But the big picture was God Himself would condescend and put on flesh and come to us. Because it's a very real need. Then the fall happens. Then the fall happens. When Adam sinned, the image of God, as it's commonly said, was effaced, but it was not erased. It was tarnished, but not vanquished. We still see resemblance of God's image in people, however perverse it might have been. Man still exercises his rationality, only he exercises it to do evil as opposed to good. Man still exercises dominion over the earth, only he's a cruel master as opposed to a good one. Man's moral dimension has undeniably been corrupted. We think what is wrong is right, and we think what is right is wrong. Very creation man has dominion over, Paul says in Romans 1, now we condescend and worship it. We were once supposed to rule it, now we exalt it on pedestals and are ruled by it. That's what's happened to man. That's what the image of God has been relegated to. Where once man walked in perfect fellowship spiritually with God, he now finds himself alienated from God as a result of the fall. Sin has defiled, sin has debased, and sin has disfigured the image of God in man, but it cannot and it will not ever erase that image completely. So this brings us to my message this morning, evangelism. And this is the one point. I think evangelism begins, as we talked about last week, with proclaiming. But there is a very real need for evangelism to be incarnational as well. Man doesn't simply need to hear a message. He needs to hear it from people. Just as God could look at Adam in perfection and say, it's not good for you to be alone. Evangelism so often is approached or thought of in this way, we are going to go to the lost and simply tell them something. Proclaim something to them. But that's not all. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. I love this passage because we see it black and white, what I'm talking about. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, The church at Thessalonica was a very dear church for Paul. 
In chapter 2, let's just begin reading in verse 1. Paul says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. There we see evangelism, do we not? We were afflicted. We came to you out of affliction, fleeing Philippi. And what did we do? We proclaimed the gospel. It's evangelism. But he goes on. Verse 3, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. But we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now listen to verse 8. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but what? Our own being. Evangelism for Paul at Thessalonica was more than just proclaiming. It was proclaiming, but it was giving himself to them as well. It was the giving of himself, the sharing of himself, because they had become very dear to us. In trying to encourage the church to evangelize, my goal is to get us to not see evangelism so much as a work as it is a method or way of being, of proclaiming to people the gospel, but presenting ourselves to them as flesh and blood in their life, people who God has now redeemed. I think that is just as important as preaching the gospel to people. As we saw in John 1.14, the Word, who is God and who was with God at the beginning, became flesh. And not only does it say He became flesh, it says what? He dwelt. The Word is tabernacled. He pitched His tent with us and dwelt with us for a little bit. That's the idea. That's the idea of evangelism. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, what did Jesus do? He showed up as a man. And everywhere He went, He preached the Gospel. But is that all He did? No. So much was He a person to the people He evangelized that even those who didn't believe in Him would say this, isn't He a carpenter? Wait, aren't those His brothers? How dare he claim to be the Son of God? So immediately was Jesus a person to the people he evangelized. The offense was not that. The offense was the claim of deity. Of course, he was God in the flesh. Paul summed it up this way in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men being found in human form, he became obedient to the point of death. You see, evangelism for Jesus was twofold. 
It was preaching the message, the gospel of the kingdom, that He Himself would fulfill, that the incarnation would pinnacally be uh, fulfilled in the atonement. But when we think about the incarnation of Christ, I wonder if we've forgotten some important things by limiting it to the work of atonement. I think the incarnation also speaks of the very real fact that men best correspond to men, as Genesis 2 says. And man really needs that. It's not simply a desire I have to be with other people. It's a necessity. And God said so. And so what did God do? He knew no one could correspond to Him in His deity, so He took on humanity, so that when He showed up preaching the gospel, it was man to man. And we see Jesus going from town to town, having pity, having compassion, feeding, sleeping, rebuking, healing. One of the most touching examples, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 1, of this incarnational type of evangelism where Jesus enters into man's situation, to man's dimension. Jesus is just beginning His ministry. In Mark chapter 1, verse 40, says this, And a leper came to Him, imploring Him and kneeling, said to Him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, He stretched out His hand and touched Him. And then He said, I will. I am willing. Be clean. Don't miss what just happened. Before Jesus ever verbally said anything to this man, what did He do? Before He said, I am willing to cleanse you, what did He do? He was moved with pity. Literally, the English says touched. The Greek word there literally means Jesus embraced Him. Does that speak? Does that speak to a leper? who's probably not been touched by a person in years? Do you see the beauty of what Jesus is doing person to person to person? When He reached out and embraced that leper, He communicated the Gospel before He said a word. God is now corresponding to people. And He's entered into our mess. Why? So that we could be brought back to Him. Incarnational evangelism. There's more to the incarnation than simply the atonement, though the atonement is certainly the pinnacle of the incarnation. In Romans 10, we looked at this verse last week. 10.17 says this, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. But do you know what Paul said in the two verses right before that? He gave us some very human elements to consider. How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's not simply proclaiming. It's about the feet coming to proclaim it. So what I'm honing in on exactly and what I'm trying to highlight for us, part of our mission statement we said it this way. We want verbal faith, that was last week, and what? 
Visible faith. I'm honing in on the visible faith this week. I'm honing in on the visible faith. Evangelism to me is not simply proclaiming. It is that. But I'm talking about the image of Christ in believers, not only the work that believers do for Christ. The incarnation is so wonderful in its doctrine. It's so mysterious and vast. It's always been held to be a mystery beyond the church's ability to fully comprehend. And I've got to confess, I'm profoundly convinced and ashamed almost to admit I've never considered the implications of the Incarnation outside of the work of atonement. But they're there. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make for him a helper. A foreshadow of Christ incarnated who came to man in his misery, in his shame, in his weakness, in his defilements, and embraced us as a man. So much so that Paul would say it this way, in the Gospel, the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6. You see that? Man was originally crowned with glory and honor. That was lost at the fall. Jesus came as a man, and what's He reveal? The glory of God in the face. The face that man once was glorified as God's creation, bearing His image, lost with sin. Christ came back, bearing it once more. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Chapter 3. In verse 9 and 10 of first, or Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and that you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. After what? The image of its Creator. Go to the book of Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. Paul says essentially the same thing in verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, what? Created. After the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. What's the point of evangelism? What's the goal of evangelism? It's to renew the image of God in the people He redeems. But the image of God is found in people. It's not something abstract. It's not an idea. It's an image. It's a likeness that man once bore and lost. So what's God do in evangelism? He enlists people to go back to people and speak the message by which that image can then be renewed and they can see it face to face. It's exactly what happened in Jesus. Jesus bore perfectly the image of God, Hebrews 1, verse 3. He was the exact imprint of His nature. So much so Jesus would say, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. But it's undeniable Jesus was a man. And people could look at him and say, I see the image of God in you. That's what's missing in my life. That's what's so tarnished. That's what's so off. That's what's so wrong. 
So God gives the church as a dwelling place for His Spirit who fills us and commissions us to go out as representatives of Him. Both to proclaim and to mirror the image of Christ and call sinners back to that image that was lost. I love the profoundity of this point. What it shows us is that man, after the fall, needs both his spiritual life to be founded once again in God. But it also means he needs a human correspondent, which he had in Jesus. Human relationships, no doubt, once the fall happened and man was separated from God, what did man do? He turned to one another to find his meaning, his purpose, his identity. We started identifying ourselves by ourselves rather than being creations of God. So man's pride swells. We make monuments to ourself, Nebuchadnezzar. We worship ourselves. Still that desire to worship. Only now, in Christ, being both God and man, can both those relationships be truly united back to what they originally were pre-fall. So the Christian view of humanity is this. That each individual possesses inherent dignity, inherent moral worth, and eternal value. Matt Chandler said it this way, unworthy doesn't mean worthless. Unworthy doesn't mean worthless. Without a doubt, every single one of us is unworthy of what God has done and gives us. But unworthiness doesn't mean that we are worthless to God. In the incarnation, God condescending to become a person so that people could have someone to correspond to demonstrates and loudly proclaims, I love you. You are valuable to me. Are you not much more valuable than many sparrows, Jesus said? Are not the hairs on your very head numbered? Do I not know your days before any of them have yet come to pass? That's the picture of evangelism. That's the goal of evangelism. To restore man back to the image of God in which he was originally created. And Jesus is now using the church as his body, using men to reach men so that he might restore his image in people. There's an interesting passage in Ezekiel speaking of the new covenant, the work of Christ. There God says it this way, I'm not doing this work for your sake, but for mine. For my name's sake. It's not that God's indifferent to people. We've just seen He's certainly not indifferent to people. But it is pointing to this truth. The image of God in man has been tarnished. It's been distorted. It's been twisted to terrible things. And God, through people, is now restoring His name back to its rightful place. That's the work of the Gospel. He makes all things new, as we read in Ephesians and Colossians, in the true likeness of God, righteousness, and holiness. And He commissions the church to then take that back to people. 
There's a whole lot of other dimensions with evangelism that could have been developed and probably should be developed. But I was trying to be very specific to get you to think about why does God send people? When He told Adam way back in the garden before Eve ever came, before sin entered, it's not good for you to be alone. You need someone to correspond to. I think that's our answer, church. Why does God commission people to go to people and share the message? Because men best correspond to men. We know each other's weaknesses, faults, failures, intricacies. And Jesus came as a man and knew all of that. And He now therefore commissions us as His church to go and do the same. If you would, would you pray with me? And just think upon this truth. Father, Your ways are so far above our ways. Your thoughts are as high as the heaven is. Father, we confess our thoughts are not Your thoughts. Our ways are not Your ways. You are holy. You are righteous. And what we lost at the fall, You are now working through the death and resurrection of Jesus, to restore back in man. You make us new creations in Christ, a creation that now once again resembles the likeness of God in people. And Father, knowing even in perfection that man needs man to correspond to Him, You humbled Yourself, as Paul says in Philippians, and You took on human form so that in every way we could have a helper who perfectly corresponds to us and yet was without sin, who could bring us back to God in restoration as a person. And Father, the profound mission of evangelism given to the church isn't simply proclaiming the gospel. It's to be the likeness of God once again on earth for the lost to see and the lost to hear. You are working to restore your great name, as we read in Psalm 8, where David opens and closes that psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, Father. We want your name to be majestic once again in the earth, beginning with the creation who once bore your image. And that's what evangelism is doing. It's not just telling them people a message. It's showing them who we were supposed to be in the first place and what was lost because of sin. And what in your goodness and your humility and kindness have done to make it possible for man once again to be restored, to be born again in the likeness of God. So Father, I pray, here's my prayer for us. Father, that we would not look at people who don't know you in a condescending way. We would look at them as fellow creatures who've been ruined by the fall, as we sing. Who are weak and wounded. Who are weary. Who are heavy burdened. Whom you invite to come to you and to be restored once again. Father, that your image 
might be clearly seen in people whom you love. That's my prayer for us, Lord. Give us a love for people because they bear your image even though it's tarnished. Father, give us a love for people by giving us a love for your great name. You are good, you are kind, you are patient, you are loving, you are wise, you are powerful. You are humble, you're gentle, Lord. You're forgiving. And no matter what we may have done in the flesh to tarnish your name, your image in us, Father, there's no sin that you can't wash clean and restore that image. In your presence is the fullness of joy, Lord. I pray for those here, Lord, who, who are still yet separated from you because of their sin, Father, that they would come. Father, that they'd find in you through Christ, Lord, what it is their hearts long for. Father, that they'd understand the message and the invitation is for all. The work of salvation, Father, you've accomplished and you're still accomplishing day after day in saving people out of their sin, restoring them back to you. As Paul would plead in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors of Christ pleading, be reconciled to God. You're so good, Lord, in doing that. I pray as the church, we are manifesting Jesus as his temple, as his building, as his body, that people would hear the gospel from us and that they would see Christ in us so that they might get a glimpse of what sin is doing to them and flee from it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.